Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, joined today by Jim Bashford. He's the National Sales and Training Manager at SpacePack. And I'm excited to talk with him today about air-to-water heat pumps. Bum, 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 bum. This is a, pod, this is a podcast topic that you've heard mentioned many times on the show, and finally we're going to dig in. So quick background on Jim. He came into the industry a few days out of high school, and he's been there ever since. And when I mean came into the industry, he started a small HVAC company and then ran his own firm for many years before joining SpacePack around eight years ago. So he's deeply knowledgeable about all aspects of installation and service for air water heat pumps. So he really knows what he's talking about. We're lucky to have him. Jim, welcome. Thanks, Christoph. I appreciate the invitation and uh, coming on with you today to talk about the uh, the magic, if you will, of air-to-water technology. Yeah. Well, before we go any farther, is there anything you wanted to more say about your background? or? Yeah, you, you hit it pretty well. I appreciate the introduction. Uh, I've been have been in the industry since, uh, since basically three days out of high school, so I've got uh, 23 plus years been kind of the in and outs in the in the dingy basements in the super hot attics but uh, actually uh, been very fortunate even yeah all the glamour right all the glamour right been very fortunate in my past to have put some of the very first air to water uh, heat pumps in so I kind of have a you know about 12 13 years ago so I have a uh, a pretty fortunate uh, ability to kind of know where the the system and the technology has come from and where it's going now and in my position, able to kind of adjust that and uh, work with contractors and the industry to, to help direct it in the best way possible. Excellent. So I'd like to touch briefly on the parent company for SpacePack, which is MessTech. And I do that because I know some people have asked questions. It confused me at first for a little while. The pith of it is that MessTech, that's M-E-S-T-E-K, is the parent company. They own many other companies, but within there, there's SpacePack. And SpacePack is the air water heat pump division, I guess. I don't know if that's the right term, section of MessTech. And it is a small, nimble, mission-focused group. And you're basically one of the leads there. That is correct, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't want to get too bogged down in, in MessTech because it could be a big... We could talk about that for an hour. Yeah, MessTech is a big company. Uh, SpacePack as a company... Uh, originated, or should I say, broke into the industry with small duct high velocity air distribution. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, 40 plus years um, in the making. So with that said, there, our transition, our interest in air to water technology really began about 12, 13 years ago. And it's kind of been a labor of love, if you will, um, trying to get, uh, get the information and the knowledge and the abilities of this equipment out into the industry. And we're really starting to gain some traction with uh, really nationwide understanding and response and uh, acceptability uh, of the technology and uh, due to its uh, adaptive nature and uh, good performance in all uh, geographic locations. So I think we should just dump right in. So we're talking about air to water heat pumps and let's just start with helping listeners understand those terms. Uh, before we do the air to water piece, I think uh, let's talk about heat pumps for a minute. 
putting you on the spot a little bit. How would you describe heat pumps, Jim? Sure, heat pumps. So uh, a heat pump and an air-to-water heat pump, although they they share similar uh, words within their their name descriptions, they're they're slightly different. A regular air-to-air heat pump, something that the industry and and society as a whole is probably much more familiar with, uh, works in in a fairly similar fashion. They use temperature within uh, the ambient air. Uh, couple that with a refrigerant circuit, basically heating or cooling up refrigerant, sending it uh, into a house. And we might have uh, what people are very uh, commonly known as uh, ductless splits or mini split heads um, or even uh, fan coils. So heat pump uh, as a generic term uh, means more than just heat pump. So heat pump is generally capable of heating as well as offering cooling. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we transition into the air to water, uh, basically what we do is we look at taking that same kind of technology. I throw out the term uh, an air to water heat pump is a really efficient electric boiler that sets outside. Mm. (laughs) Um, The change is that we've taken that energy from the air temperature through the refrigerant circuit. And instead of changing or sending that energy through the refrigerant circuit, we actually transition that refrigerant's energy, be it hot energy or cold energy in the temperature as it changes depending on mode, and we send that or transfer that into water or a water glycol mixture, depending on where we're at geographically and what we're doing um, for an application. We send that inside to one of the millions and millions and millions of homes in the country uh, that use some form of hydronic heating uh, or hydronic cooling, low temperature. So this is why you mentioned the boiler earlier. It's like an electric boiler because there's already might be radiators in the building. That, that's correct. I would have to say a uh, primary portion of uh, air-to-water heat pump installations have to do with a, a retrofit of a pre-existing application or a pre-existing uh, system within a home uh, that's uh, where the homeowners, contractors, customers are still and have been very comfortable using their low-temperature baseboard or maybe some panel radiators or uh, a fan favorite, the uh, in-floor radiant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. So just to summarize, heat pumps are machines and they're reliable. They have gotten a little bit of a stigma in the industry because I think they came out in the 80s with temperatures that were above the space temperature, the set point temperature, which so they could heat, but they were below skin temperature. So that's a bit of a problem. But just to, like even the word heat, right? Heat is a measure of the flow of thermal energy. Temperature is the measure of the energy, right? So heat is a flow. Energy is an amount. And what we're doing is we're, the pump is is this, is this also talking about a flow. We're pumping heat from place to place, just like you could pump a fluid from place to place. And when we talk about, yeah, you mentioned it well. I like that you brought up air-to-air heat pumps, right? So classic heat pump like your refrigerator or, you know, what's in your car. Actually, let's pause there for a minute. Listeners, whatever you say the word air conditioner or think of an air conditioner, you're actually thinking of a heat pump in cooling mode. Um and so like the, the refrigerant in an air to air heat pump is in the middle. It's air to refrigerant to air. And then, so that's the thermal fluid, the refrigerant. What we do in a air to water heat pump is we do air to refrigerant to water to air. So we add that extra thermal fluid. Minor hit potentially on uh, efficiency makes up for it with robust reliability, the ability to unlock thermal storage. There's so much. Um, please. There's far more uh, benefit than the uh, 
the very minimal, uh, if it's even measurable in some instances, the amount of loss when we're transferring from that energy from the refrigerant mm -hmm. to uh, hydronic. We can carry more BTUs in a fluid than we can. Um, we have really limitless opportunity or abilities with, uh, once we understand how uh, hydronics flow, right, pumping and pipe sizing, we can carry BTUs for hundreds and hundreds of feet without question. And you mentioned it was uh, kind of a good uh, comment there. If we're thinking air conditioning, we're also thinking heat pump. And when I mentioned earlier the you know the air to water heat pump basically being a an efficient electric boiler, uh, I always throw the caveat in of oh and by the way during the hottest parts of the summer it can handle all of your cooling when the system is designed in that way. Um, we have uh, systems and some of the very early air to water heat pump systems were very let's say. Um, Temperature contingent, right? Their their ability to create BTUs and transfer them into the home was uh, the variable was the outside ambient temperature. And the colder it got, the capacity started to really drop on some of the units. Um, we have a very extensive uh, offering of what we call cold climate heat pumps, right? Or cold climate air to water. That's been kind of uh, the buzzword, and um, we're very capable of making you know housewarming levels of BTUs into the thirty and forty thousands. Um, you know, at well below zero temperatures, Fahrenheit temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to go back to my comment about the efficiency. That's, that's strictly from like a physicist geeky Carnot efficiency. I mean, there's, there is a separate heat exchange process. So technically there's going to be an additional um, loss. However, it can be more than made up for in practice. And where the rubber meets the road is with the COP, this coefficient of performance basically, you know, what you pay for versus what you get. So you pay for the energy and you get the heating or cooling. And the COPs for air, water, heat pumps are in the two to four range, which is exactly what you get with air to air. Yep. The two to four and even sometimes higher. Um, oh, some oh. of the, the systems uh, with our with variable speed compressors and fans, uh, when these heat pumps come on, we want them to kind of we don't want them to come on and off, right? Think about it like cruise control in your car. We want the unit to come on because it needs to come on and run at a very consistent uh, speed, right? Both fan speed and uh, and compressor speed. In theory, these, these units are set to run at their most efficient state. If we're targeting lower water temperatures, say the system is designed about a lower water temperature, we're very much able to run higher COPs, right? And uh, ambient conditions uh, will also dictate how high that COP is. We've seen COPs, you know, four plus, you know, even into the five, depending on uh, the desired delivered water temperature. Yeah. You know, and what we always mention when we're discussing things, we say a COP of one, well, that might sound terrible, but a COP of one is really 100% efficient, right? That would be an electric resistance element, a piece of electric resistance baseboard. So when we start getting higher than a one COP, that means, for instance, if I'm giving you a dollar to create energy for me, you're giving me two, three or four dollars worth of energy back. That's an incredible return on my initial investment of energy. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many directions to take this. Um, you know, I think I want to, I'm going to bring us back to the technology and the basic components. I want to just briefly, you know, listeners, thank you for joining. Thank you for your interest in, in air, water, heat pumps. Jim mentioned air source heat pumps, right? And these new cold climate air source heat pumps, by the way, you're going to look for the acronym. It's a lowercase C, lowercase C for cold climate, 
and then capital ASHP for air source heat pumps. Same thing for air water heat pumps, lowercase c, lowercase c, A-W-H-P. Those are what, uh, how they refer to the acronyms they go by. So if you see those, that's what, that's what it's referring to. But there's a bit of an education gap, you know, in society and, and particularly within the industry, which is disappointing. Um, even at a government level, it's as though the, you know, everybody is getting on the bandwagon to push heat pumps. We know that. We know this is a, a technology that society is currently availing to electrify the global economy, electrify heating, which is profound. Um, in that context, it's mainly pushing air source heat pumps. It's not talking about air water heat pumps. Government organizations don't seem to know about them. You know, Solstice, like your, your lead product gets an award. Um, I just want to talk about the this education gap and um, yeah, tell me, tell me why you think this is not happening. Do you have any perspective on that? Why people are not hearing more about hydronic systems? I think uh, it takes a little bit to get the ball rolling, right, Christoph? I mean, we've got, when we're talking air to air, probably every state, municipality, town has rebates or incentives for uh, higher efficient air to air type equipment. Um, air to water equipment, although it's been in uh, parts of North America for at least from spaceback standpoint for our, you know 12 13 years it's far uh, and above the um, really the pinnacle of efficiency you know in in other countries we're a little bit slower um, to kind of adapt to some of this newer technology uh, I, I feel society wise we're uh, we like to be where we're comfortable uh, it took a little bit of time to get comfort within uh, air-to-air heat pumps, and I think it's going to take a little bit of time, much less time, um, as we get more accustomed as a society and an energy-minded group of, of people throughout the country to kind of accept these levels of change are, be go are going to come more often um, and, in, in turn, uh, accept them. We do have some, some larger entities uh, that have kind of started to grasp on to uh, the air to water technology as far as rebates, right? I mean, um, once uh, someone incentivizes technology through rebates, meaning the government or that town is going to support this product, that's when it starts to get get some wheels, right? I mean, I, I kind of make the joke, everybody likes something when it's on sale. Um, and if I already have a piece of super uh, efficient equipment that I'm interested in my house and, hey, my local municipality wants to give me a little bit of support financially for that via a tax break or a rebate or something like that, um, th there's going to be a little bit more balance in it. Yeah. Generally speaking, what drives um, the interest in products is a government or a town's ability to support it. And that's by supporting it financially. Mm -hmm. And that's supporting it through rebate programs. Well, rebate programs <clears throat> are justified by handing out money. Yeah. And if those programs do not function properly, yeah. they don't give out the amount of money they need to, then... Uh, they have to actually uh, adjust things, right? So if something's not getting as much money or as much support, it's not as much uh, in the public view shed, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. We have uh, areas in Vermont and British Columbia, Mass Save, Sonoma Clean Energy, California, um, the areas that all have rebate programs and structures for air to water technology as a whole. Um, and those, those rebate levels vary almost monthly, depending on, you know, how the money comes in, it has to go out. Uh, one of the, the things that I like to be the root driver of it is not necessarily the, the price tag, but so much um, that individual, that contractor, that homeowner, end user, the installing contractors 
understanding of what this technology is and what it can do for you, right? Can it make your 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 home in New England that needs heating all winter long because it's a relatively cold climate in a older style home that's never had air conditioning? Well, we could add air conditioning onto that home, right? Or, or vice versa. If we're as the, you know, without going down a rabbit hole, as temperatures change and climates change throughout, things get warmer, areas get colder, storms get worse, um, so things get better. We, we need to have more adaptable uh, comfort systems in your house, whether you're in the furthest parts of South Florida on the West Coast or even in the, the most northern parts of Maine or uh, even in Canada. So yeah. as the interest um, grows and as the consumer becomes more educated, mm. uh, there will inevitably be a that snowball effect of a much larger, uh, much faster moving uh, ball of information and acceptance of this technology. Yeah, well said. Well said. I'm reminded of Amory Levin's quote: "What people want is a warm house and a cold beer." You know, and the implication is that they don't really care how they get that, and it's that they don't really care that apathy to like I, you know, I don't even I didn't even know my fridge was a heat pump. I, I don't even know. sure. So, like, how do we get them to like distinguish between an air water heat pump and an air source heat pump when they don't even know the first? That's the tricky bit. And, and that comes to that comes to the contractor. I mean, a lot of that is mm-hmm. a, a contractor. When we do home shows and things throughout the country, um, if we could have every contractor, the, the contractor or, you know, is, is the best salesperson, if you will, for for this technology, if they believe in it and they know that, oh, your house already has low temperature baseboard, you're looking to maybe move away from uh, propane fossil fuels. OK, this is an option for you. Um, so that 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 homeowner, that end user, may not even know is an option. Yeah, yeah, well said. And then there's larger societal ones. We'll touch on those briefly, and then we'll be unpacking them after we go through the technologies. But for listeners right now, there's probably three main benefits, and this is why we're all, and I mean we are all, society is focusing on air water heat pumps. One is that we're not just going through an energy transition, we're going through a refrigerant transition, and this is going to mean lots of disruption and pain for society, for heating and cooling professionals particularly. As soon as you go with an air water heat pump, you now have, you know, the house has a hot water supply, hot water return, cold water supply, cold water return. If it, you know, if it's all built from hydronic, for hydronic from the beginning. But then beyond that is technology agnostic. We could switch to different refrigerants. As long as that monoblock unit, and we'll get to that right in a minute. So, so this this technology agnostic piece, right? You know, you don't have to wonder if you're going to need to rip out refrigerant lines, let alone ducts. And then the ability to have re- reduced refrigerant volumes, right? This is the huge, huge impact. This, you know, the the global warming effect. These greenhouse gases, refrigerants are many times, many thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. So that's the second one. And the third one is the ability to unlock thermal storage and, you know, the, the well-rehearsed mantra. And I think, gosh, it goes back to John Siegenthaler and Robert Bean more than a decade ago. This this idea of thermal storage for thermal loads. Mm-hmm. You don't need a battery to heat your house if you've stored hot water or stored cold water. Yeah, let's, let's now jump into the technologies, having kind of gotten people aware. Those are the main three, technology agnostic, thermal storage, and reduced refrigerant use. So the systems, the basic components of an air-to-water heat pump system are, I guess, let's go through them outside. 
Yeah, if we're if we're looking at the the system as a whole, we take take a look at just that outside unit. Okay, we're talking a, an air to water heat pump that's a monoblock size. So monoblock design means the entire refrigerant circuit is outside enclosed. Piping to and from that would be your water glycol lines going into the mechanical room. The outside unit is made up of everything that we're already very familiar with. We have a compressor. We have a evaporator coil. We have a condenser coil that runs in conjunction with the exchanger, right? The refrigerant to water exchanger. And then we have a reversing valve. So whether we're in heating or cooling, either those refrigerant gases go one direction or the other, either creating a very hot temperature or a very cold temperature on the condenser side of that exchanger. Now from there, we have a system inside, right? Thermal storage is is and forever will be the magic word when it comes to efficiency. Mm-hmm. We have a what we call a buffer tank or a thermal storage, a, a storage of battery. Uh, depending on system size, it can vary, meaning uh, system as in home size. Uh, it can be a, a smaller tank, 13 gallons. It could be all the way up to 80 gallons or, or even well over 1,000, depending on the application. In theory, these systems are extremely efficient, Okay. I mean, not in theory, they, they truly are efficient. Yeah. However, like with anything else in life, things are more efficient at two different times mm. when they are completely off or when they're running at a very nice, smooth, steady state. <laughs> completely the, off. <laughs> right? So we want to optimize the times that the system is not running and then optimize the time that it is running. Okay? With air-to-water technology, it's very common that we would like a, if there's a, Let's just take, for instance, a normal size house, right? If we're talking in the 1,600 to 2,000 square foot range, full radiant application, let's just say heat only for for argument's sake. We have a heat pump outside, and let's just say we have an 80-gallon buffer tank inside. Now, that buffer tank is a place for the thermal storage to happen. It's also a place to separate the flows, if you will, right? That hydraulic separation that some of us may be familiar with Mm -hmm. um, through, through hydronic heating and cooling. Think about the outside heat pump and the buffer tank being one system. So, i.e. the charger being the heat pump outside and the battery inside being the buffer tank. Once that satisfies, everything shuts off. And now we're able to store this thermal energy, this mass in the tank. So it's always ready to go. Okay. Now let's say the uh, first floor calls, right? First floor radiant calls. It'll start basically sipping off of this 80 gallon thermal tank of storage okay, and sending temperature and heat throughout the home. Uh, If there is a small um, load present, it might be able to satisfy the load just by using the energy stored in the tank multiple times. Over time, as the tank were to drop temperature, it may, depending on what we call a differential, which would be our our start time and our start temperature and stop temperature, um, we could allow that tank to drop 10 or 15 degrees prior to calling the heat pump on again. So we could satisfy a lot of this home's load without ever directly turning on the heat pump. Yeah, beautiful. Once that thermal storage then drops below what we would calculate to be a safe amount, right? And every system has a range of temperatures that would be adequate for heating. The heat pump would then come on. And even if the home's load satisfies during this time, the heat pump would still run uh, until it brings that, that battery in theory back up to full charge in running uh, or full charge or, or 
top temperature or set point temperature uh, in, in the amount of time it took. It might take 10 minutes. It might take 15 minutes, kind of depending on the load. But having that thermal storage always gives you a really nice, efficient uh, head start when it comes to, uh, to taking care of the load. Um, in any houses with multiple small loads, whether that be cheese bathrooms with radiant towel bars, um, small uh, fan-assisted coils, you can do a lot of heating if I have a buffer tank setting with 120 degree water, you know, kind of ready to go. I love it. I wanna, I wanna highlight two points that you just made. That's, thank you, Jim. So one is this idea of just the heat pump just purring along at a nice steady load and how efficient it is. And I think we all know what that's like in a car, right? You get the car up to speed and you can ease off the accelerator and it just, just cruises along. It's very similar. Versus in a refrigerant system, it's going to need you to put your foot in it, right? It's, it's There's going to be this, like the house can call for more heat, but it calls for it from the buffer tank, not from sure. the air water heat pump. And in between you have this buffer. And that's the second point here is this buffering is something we're also familiar with. Like right now, if you're, if you're streaming this audio, what you're hearing, your device, your phone, your computer, it downloaded it a while ago and it buffered it so that it could play it to you output in a steady stream. Now there might be interruptions on the input side, but you don't hear them because you're not hearing the direct feed in. So this, these two together, this ability to buffer and this ability to separate the, the load from the source. So the, the load that the heat pump feels is not the instantaneous heat load on the house or the cooling load on the house. And that's such an important concept. Exactly. That's that's probably um, I'm probably going to actually use some of what you just said next time I get to talk about it because it, it hits really hits the nail on the head, so to speak. Right. With a large buffer tank or any size buffer tank, but the larger, the better through set. You can actually control how that unit outside receives the load and you can control uh, that unit outside. Uh, say there is a call for heating or cooling, right? Depending on what way we're um, tempering the tank, it's going to take into account what temperature it's trying to get to. It's going to take into account what temperature it's being received and whether it has to go up and down and how far. And with variable speed fans and compressors, all inverter driven technology now, um, that unit will find its absolute perfect spot to always run its most efficient time and most efficient uh, way or fashion. That's so important, you guys. Please let that sink in. That's profound. You know, extending out a little bit here, you, like, I don't know which way to take this. We'll go to thermal storage or come back to thermal storage. You mentioned the word in a full radiant application. And I'll try not to bog down into this too much because there's a lot here. But when we say full radiant application, what you mean is that you have this large area heat exchanger, like the, the floors in the home are the heat exchanger. And because you have a large area, this large heat exchanger, you don't need as much temperature differential in it. And that means you can do this amazing thing uh, that I first heard from Robert Bean, and I would have sworn he said it wrong. Low temperature heating, high temperature cooling. And I'm like, Robert, I think you just put the low and the high in the wrong spot. So low temperature heating versus high temperature heating. Could you just unpack that briefly? So, yeah, I mean, basically what we're saying there and the thought process is behind when, when you get a, a system that's set up appropriately, uh, a lot of times, Christoph, we get uh, the, the first question because people are used to high temperature, either gas or oil fire boilers are like, 
these things will never work. How hot can we make the water coming out of these units, right? How hot can we make the water? And my, my defense is always, okay, well, although there is an application for just about all uh, purposes with air to water equipment, the design of the system, right? Say we're talking about that large radiant system, okay? And our ability to really heat or increase the surface area of uh, emitter, right? Increase the, the shell. We won't even get into what we can do to make homes more efficient and lower the load. Oh, I might go there. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I'll be ready. Uh, we can actually look to do the same amount of heating with a much lower water temperature. Exactly. And uh, basically, we think about it like uh, oversizing certain things, right? If we're in a if we're in a radiant application, where even if we're doing a, a shop, if you will, and we're doing a concrete and slab heating. We could, if we're looking to bring air temperature to maybe 65 degrees or 60, you know, depending on where we're comfortable, we don't have to use much more water temperature than that um, to, to achieve those. And whether we couple large thermal masses with a, a constant circulation where uh, the, the heat pump then just runs and, and injects uh, just a little bit of temperature when it's needed, uh, it's it's super great. I mean, the other thing that we look into when we talk about high temperature cooling is it's not really how cold you need the water to make your your home cool or your space pool. How warm of a cool water temperature mm-hmm. can I make? Right? Because really, air conditioning is just the uh, the removal of the moisture within the air. Right? You remove the moisture yeah. and the temperature drops. Yeah. If we remove the moisture too quickly, or I'm sorry, we remove the temperature too quickly without the moisture, then we get that damp, clammy feeling, right? So with air to water, we can actually run uh, a warmer chilled water temperature, right? So and maybe instead of instead of that 42, 45 degrees, we're running a 50 or a 55 degrees. This may allow uh, or seemingly allow the system to run longer, but that whole time it's removing more moisture out of the system. Right. To jump back to cool, uh, to heating, just because I've, I've used this one a few times, we we look for the, the best way to use uh, a lower amount of, of water temperature. The lower the water temperature, the more efficient we're going to be on the system because we're going to lo- use less energy. I make the joke sometimes that if I had a fire-breathing dragon in the basement and that fire-breathing dragon was heating a tank up to 140 degrees, well, now it only has to heat it up to 120 because some of the infrastructure has changed within the home. Mm-hmm. Well, now that dragon is 20 degrees more efficient, right? We're going to use 20 more, uh, you know, less energy com- coming from that fire, right? So when we start looking at things, it's, it is, it's let's, how, how cool of a water can we use to heat and how warm of a water can we use to cool? Yeah. Right? We, we, uh, we start getting into this realm of not just creating the energy source, but creating an energy efficient system as a whole. Yeah, and and this is probably, and I'm glad we arrived at this, this is probably the absolute core of of the superiority of air water heat pumps to refrigerant systems, is that you don't need these high temperatures, you don't need these low temperatures. If you think about nature, I mean, it's. It, I think in many ways it would be good to emulate nature. It has figured out how to run off of very low quality resources. The, the technical term is exergy, right? Like natural gas is a very high exergy source. Whereas you think about the oceans, there's enough thermal energy in the oceans to power global heating and needs many, many times over, millions of times over. But you can't put an extension cord into the ocean, right? It's a very low exergy source. So we really need to move our society away from precious, finite, 
high energy sources, which by the way, end up with a waste product in the sky that you can never recapture to low energy sources, right? This, this, this low temperature heating, high temperature cooling that frankly is unlocked even more with radiant systems, right? You can, you can still accomplish it with some forced air systems. I want to take us to just one quick diversion and I'll probably just say this, this, the idea of how the human body experiences thermal comfort is that it is predominantly an experience of the surrounding surface temperatures. Now the mainstream, the air to air, the air to refrigerant to air path to control the surrounding surface temperatures is to control the temperature of the fluid inside the container, inside the enclosure. And if you just think about like a spaghetti pot, a big pot that has no water in it, and you're going to, you know, put some hot fluid in it. Well, as soon as you put the hot fluid in it, the walls of the spaghetti pot are hot. You put cold fluid in it, they're cold. That's how conventional air to air systems work. As soon as you go radiant, now you're directly controlling, you're doing thermally active surfaces and the floor is heating the walls, heating the ceiling. And the body's experience of that space is one of superior comfort, but then it goes deeper, right? Like when we're comfortable and we have stable surrounding surface temperatures, we actually feel safer. We feel like this is a solid enclosure. I'm protected. It's subtle. It's psychological. But everything we do in our lives is fundamentally about optimizing our, our emotional or psychological state. So that was a bit of a diversion, but I just wanted to get it out there. Now let's talk about the enclosure because you said, oh, maybe we shouldn't go there and talk about the enclosure. But this idea of thermal storage, you know, you said, oh, you can do a 13-gallon buffer, an 80-gallon buffer thousands of gallons, you know, you could bury a very well insulated septic tank and you're not, well, maybe you could put. Anyway. I wouldn't say it's so far out of being hypothetical because we've seen some pretty large buffer tanks. So yeah, exactly. So, but the point is like, if you have a standard, like 2000 square foot home and you know, it's, it's in the Midwest in a cold climate um, and you have an 80 gallon tank and the power goes out, well, you have 80 gallons of hot, of hot water. I'm sorry. Maybe you have a battery to run it out. If there's an outage, that 80 gallons could take you maybe overnight or something like that, but it couldn't take you much longer. But as soon as you take that same home and you give it a better thermal enclosure, right? That 80 gallons, the heat in the 80 gallons is essentially replacing the heat that's leaking out through the enclosure. So it's sort of like the enclosure is the boat with the leaky hull and the 80 gallons is the, the amount of bilge pump time you have, right? So, well, instead of just doing bigger and bigger bilge pumps that were running them longer, we as a society are just now, this is the passive house uh, movement, you know, over the last 10 years, just starting to go, wait a minute, we could just patch the hull. <laughs> sure. We, we could, we could, you know, there's been more and more talk. Um, you know, we, we, we have the discussion constantly and any, anyone listening to this has been to any home show, right? You'll see window door manufacturers, insulating companies, roofing companies, anything to create, you know, a, a tighter home. Uh, we work with architects almost daily. And, you know, some of the most important uh, questions asked on new builds uh, are, hey, how are we going to orient this home to, you know, accept, you know, solar gain, right, to help us through the coldest parts, you know, and at the same time, how if we're, we're talking about a retrofit application or a remodel, where can we add windows, right? Where can we add windows uh, to accept a little bit more 
more um, solar gain? Or where do we need to adjust things so that we don't get so much solar gain? Mm -hmm. We literally have some homes in New England where uh, it could be zero degrees Fahrenheit and there are certain rooms that still need cooling because the solar gain is so great. Um, but when you, when you, uh, we kind of get this asked and, and don't, don't get me wrong. I love uh, our equipment and I'd love to sell it all right and support it all. But to, to be the most energy conscious, you really have to start with an energy efficient model. Um, one of the misconceptions is um, whether we're talking any type of new, let's, let's get out of the box and, just step away from air to water, but any new high efficiency technology for heating or cooling period, any make, model, brand, or style, you can't take an ultra efficient piece of equipment and put it on a home that may not be ready for it and expect dramatic results. There is a bit of balance that needs to happen there. And a lot of that comes with education as well, right? We don't want to, you know, give someone something that, um, that maybe that home isn't ready for. Right, so to speak, or if if they do get it, maybe they're able to um, manage their expectations a little bit. And uh, one of the you know the negative things that you'll hear, and again, this is any piece of efficient equipment. Hey, I I put this efficient equipment in, and it never shuts off. Right? Well, maybe it never shuts off because we're we're looking uh, that we need more energy than we can actually you know provide, depending on how the home is set up. So. You know, a home audit, an energy audit, a true load calculation is uh, ultra super important for any kind of existing upgrade, retrofit application, new build. Knowing what you have to deal with as far as your heating and cooling loads are at the very top, paramount, most important. Then you can decide from there, hey, what am I going to use for uh, to help create my levels of comfort as you discuss, right? Are we going to have air for heating and cooling? Are we going to have some air cooling and we're going to have some, um, you know, maybe some low temperatures some panel radiators, some warm, some radiant floors, a uh, bunch of different applications, but it's very much a, a project. Um, and the, the product, right. The, the end of the road, we're looking for an energy efficient system. Uh, that system encompasses everything far more than just, uh, what efficient piece of equipment we have setting outside. Love it, Jim. Yeah. Okay. So, I think um, being the building science podcast, you just talked about the building as a system and the mechanical system. You know, we don't drive around in our engine car chassis thing, or sorry, engine chassis body thing. It's just a car. Yet somehow with houses, we've decided that they're this separation that we have the enclosure and then we have the mechanical system. They are completely interdependent and interwoven into each other in terms of the client experience of what it's like to be in that building. So getting back to the components, there's so many directions to take this. This is, this is sort of like um, forks in the road all the way through. So we talked about the components and you just mentioned different types of heat exchangers in there. So the components were the basically um, the outdoor unit and typically monoblock, but there is one where the monoblock meaning the all refrigerant is the outdoor circuit. They're in extremely cold climates. You could run the refrigerant inside to avoid having water outside. You could also put some glycol and I suppose super high elevations, the amount of glycol, super cold, super high elevations, you might want to go to a split system instead of a monoblock. But am I correct? Generally speaking, monoblock. Generally speaking, yes. The monoblock is the primary requested or used unit. The, the, the split 
uh, system. Basically, just think about it as removing the refrigerant to water exchanger and putting it inside. Yeah. Um, all systems, whether they're monoblock or not, we do recommend uh, using some level of antifreeze, some percentage of protection, uh, especially if we are doing some cooling with that. And we can go down that rabbit hole if you'd like. But yes, in, in extreme circumstances, sometimes the true separation of uh, the, the the hydronic portion from going outside at all is preferred, in, in which case you'd use a split system. Primarily, the monoblock design uh, is more than, more than adequate for even the, the coldest climates. Excellent. I'm glad to get that point uncovered. Yes, beautiful. So outdoor unit has, you know, the compressor, uh, the air to refrigerant heat exchanger. Keep in mind, another important point, actually, not to go into philosophy too much, but when you're heating with a heat pump, instead of a, like, let's say a gas boiler, the gas boiler is you're destroying a precious, finite, high exergy fuel and leaving the waste products in the sky where you, you can never get to them. And they do damage, right? Health damage of if nothing else, but they do warming damage. But in contrast to that, right, of course that works. <laughs> it's like putting a V8 engine on your bilge pump. Contrast to that, when you're heating with a heat pump, you, the outdoor unit, that monoblock, that air to refrigerant heat exchanger, the, the thermal mass of the air, which is trillions of tons of gases held to the planet by gravity, is an otherwise unusable waste heat. It's just vibratory energy in the air. So this idea on one hand of using otherwise unusable waste heat, and on the other hand, I'm destroying a precious fuel that could have been used by future generations for metallurgy or rockets or, you know, other things. So it's just insane that we still do what we do as a society, but I'm, I'm sprawling myself out. So outdoor unit, low extra G source, you know, heat in the air. Then we have piping and controls. Oh, in between we could have the buffer tank. Correct. And then I, what I want to get to is these, these indoor heat exchangers. Um, so you've mentioned full radiant application. Let's talk about the probably the more common one, which is where, we, where we're actually using the heat exchange. Well, you, you tell me. They're called fan coil units. Tell us about them. So there, there's a bunch of different options. We did touch on full radiant applications. Um, there's also a lot of mixed matched applications because the the, nice. the amazing part about the hydronics is once you leave that buffer tank, you can do anything you want to it. We could have some radiant, we could go to fan coils for others. Uh, we can go to low temperature European style panel radiators, right? Yeah. That have uh, individually controlled thermostatic radiator valves and, you know, room by room by room comfort with no thermostats. And look elegant, by the way. Yeah, they look they look great. They um, they work on low temperature, right, which is what we're targeting here for, for more efficiency. We have uh, fan assisted coils. Um, we have larger uh, fan coils. Most all manufacturers, including uh, Spacepack, large air handler manufacturers have a hydronic version of that, whether it be conventional or small duct uh, high velocity air distribution. So yeah, we're taking it from air to, high, to, to refrigerant, to water, to the buffer tank, back to air. But what that allows us to do is have a mixture of whether it be uh, panel radiators or low temperature baseboard or just in-floor radiant and match that with some fan assisted coils, right? That will allow us to do even first stage, second stage heating. It'll allow us to get our, our cooling abilities or capabilities during the, the warmer summer months. Um, we wouldn't run chilled water through a radiant floor in most applications, but we can certainly run it through a fan coil that was also handling maybe a extreme load of 
of heating during the winter need now changing to to be delivering cool temperatures during the summer yeah and just as inserting in between there and i want to get back to the fan coil units you could also have a cold buffer tank and a hot buffer tank and in in like the shoulder seasons and the outdoor unit keep in mind the outdoor unit is not instantaneously responding to the thermal experience of the space so the outdoor unit could be saying well the client might be drawing from the cold water tank right now because it's the peak of the afternoon but they've also depleted the hot water tank overnight i'm going to go ahead and top off that and put more thermal energy in there you, you, you really, you, you hit this one out of the park for sure. Um, we're, we're getting more and more applications where, you know, that home, it maybe needs uh, heating when it's cold or cooling, you know, vice versa. So we can actually, yeah, we can maintain two separate buffer tanks. And again, that heat pump is not going to react to necessarily what's going on in the home. It's going to react to which tank either needs to be warmed up or cooled down. We The space pack has all of the, the controls to accommodate that and three-way valve um, switching just to, to change the direction and the mode of that heat pump outside so that we keep both tanks heating and cooling near their set point so that the, the home is kind of ready to go at any time. Yes, beautiful. Yeah, and just unpacking another little piece that I think might be helpful for listeners, this when you're running a heat pump in cooling mode, you know, well, in heating mode, you're absorbing the heat from the atmosphere and sending it to the house and collecting it, refining it, sending it to the house. In cooling mode, you're absorbing the heat from the house and you're sending it outside into the atmosphere. And this is where we can start to unpack a little bit this air to water heat pump versus ground to water heat pump. The groundwater heat pump, it's been, or ground source heat pump, has been branded as geothermal. And in some sense it is, and in some sense it's not. And that, that's a conversation for another day. We've already had that on the podcast. But the, the, there's this strong adherence to ground source heat pumps, groundwater heat pumps. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like they go into a trance or it's like this cultish religious thing. And as an engineer, there are times where it's absolutely the right choice. But generally speaking, just like we said about the monoblock, generally speaking, generally speaking, the thermal energy in the environment outside your house is plenty to heat your house. And it is certainly plenty good to reject heat into. The issues of a ground source heat pump for me, it's like in the summer when I'm cooling, I'm not sourcing my heat from anywhere. I'm rejecting my heat. And why run a pump and put my heat way underground? I mean, I guess balanced climate, you could argue, you'll pull it back out in the, in the winter. But generally speaking, we can use the atmosphere as our buffer tank for the heat source and sink. And cold climate or just regular air, air water heat pumps can handle majority of the country right now. Yeah, that, that's correct. Our, um, the, the equipment we offer, cold climate, is, you know, we're down in the, um, the negative teens, 12, 13, 15, 20 degrees even. Now, as mentioned, we do Fahrenheit. have a, I'm sorry? Fahrenheit? Yep, Fahrenheit, correct. Yep, down into the, the, the 15 and 20 degrees Fahrenheit. We do have a uh, capacity that trends uh, differently. There's different capacities offered or or BTU load, if you will. So on our cold climate heat pump models, they have full operating um, temperatures down into well below zero into the 15 and 20 degrees Fahrenheit. What changes when the temperature goes down is the available BTUs or the amount of that temperature, right? So 
just for argument, if we're targeting 130 degrees delivered water temperature coming out of the heat pump at zero degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the model, we might be able to deliver 40,000 BTUs of 130 degree water. If it gets to negative 15, that may drop. We can still do 130 degree water, but you might drop into 20 or 25,000 BTUs of that. Mm -hmm. And the understanding or the, the misconception is, you know, the systems have to be designed appropriately because if we have 25,000 BTUs available and we decide to draw 27,000 BTUs because that's what the home uh, is drawing, right? There's going to be a point where there's going to be, what is it, the rate of diminishing return or we're not going to be able to quite make that energy. So understanding your true load, there's also ways to add backup auxiliary heat, whether that be through a basic resistance or or other, other heat pumps. But knowing that that load is really truly the, the best way to kind of make your make your system as efficient as possible. And like you were saying, we've got we've got all kinds of air, right? Um, and generally speaking, we do a lot of or there should I say there is a lot of interest in when sizing equipment. They tend to size to the larger size of that piece of equipment. One, they're 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 ultra quiet. We're talking units that well under fifty decibels outside, running at full capacity. But because they vary speed and vary capacity, if they don't need to be running at full compressor speed, 90 hertz, they won't. They'll ramp right down and they'll run at 20 hertz or 10 hertz or 30 hertz, right? Uh, meaning compressor speed. So, Love it. Okay. Thank you for that, Jim. Okay. I want to just make sure we kind of round out this discussion of the quote unquote indoor units, right? So one type is the Thermally active surfaces, radiant heating, radiant cooling. Generally, you'd have a radiant heated floor, radiant cooled ceiling, towel warmers in the in the bathroom. You know, these these European panel radiators. These are all thermally active um, surfaces. And then there's this other one that you mentioned, the fan coil unit. I guess the name is descriptive. Tell us what's in a fan coil unit. Sure. So we call them uh, fan coil units, fan assisted convectors, um, depending. There, there's a couple different sizes of them, right? They are, uh, let's let's kind of imagine, if you will, that we're looking at one of those really nice looking, elegant uh, European style radiators, right? Where we're panel radiator on the, on the wall. Right. Uh, think about that inside that enclosure would be a coil that would accept either heated or chilled water. And on the bottom or somewhere within that enclosure, would be a fan. And depending on what mode we're in, that fan could be variable speed or set speed, basically drawing air out of the room, uh, pushing it through a very small either heating or cooling exchanger and then out the top of the unit as heated or chilled air. Uh, These units can be controlled via remote or touchscreen control. It gives a little quicker uh, reaction, if you will, to the uh, the heating or cooling application or the heating or cooling process, depending on the size uh, of the units. Generally, if the rooms start to get on the larger size and we need to project or move that temperature a little bit more efficiently throughout a larger space, fan-assisted coils help. Um, that's on a room-by-room uh, type application. There's also whole house style, right, air distribution, right? We're probably all on this call familiar. We've been in a house before where uh, you know, whether it's a new build or, or an uh, existing home from the 1800s, right? And we've got air moving, there's ducts, there's holes in the floor, and we know that the heat is on because the, the curtains are moving, you know, in front of the windows. 
that same style of system is, is still used today, whether it be conventional or more uh, more high velocity, which would be um, small duct delivery, right? High velocity, a lot of uh, air mixing, uh, aspiration process, and so on. So that allows us to cool a floor at a certain temperature as opposed to cooling each room at a certain temperature. Now, a, a room by room cooling or heating, heating or cooling room by room might be what uh, someone might want. And that uh, can be accommodated or, you know, in a, in a larger, uh, less um, intricate space, so to speak, more open areas, uh, if you will, foyers, hallways, great rooms, living rooms, dining rooms, um, where we might want to temper an entire space that, you know, a larger system would be better for that. Yeah. Yeah. Without, without that, that's a good, that's a good way to describe it. I mean, this whole, ex, this whole space of heat exchangers and indoor units in comparison to refrigerant, it's, it's huge, but fundamentally you can have a thermally active surface and it could be on the wall. It could be the wall. It could be the floor. It could be the ceiling and it could be radiating heat to you in the summer, which means you're, excuse me, in the winter. So you're absorbing the heat. Keep in mind, this is all about keeping your body warm. We don't really need to warm the house. We need to warm the people. And then in the summer, if you have a cooled ceiling, you're radiating heat to it, which keeps your homeostatic balance in range. And you have this thing called thermal comfort, which then leads to this thing called uh, positive emotional state, which is the sure. goal of all of it. But um, and I think like you, you went through a really good sort of description of Pure radiators, these more these more newer style radiators that are out there, fan assisted radiators, and then we get into the ducted systems. And I think one way just to kind of summarize it is that a lot of people know the variable refrigerant flow, the mini split, multi split form factors. All of those are available in hydronic systems and more. Like trench convectors is one. It's a small unit with a heat exchanger and a fan that can go under a bank of windows to keep them warm in the winter or cool in the summer. Just, you know, if I really like the designers listening, and first of all, I'd like to thank you as a designer for listening to this slightly, you know, esoteric, geeky topic. But you need to think that the palette of colors for delivering thermal comfort to your client is expanded with hydronic. And then we have those, those huge benefits, right? You support the energy transition. We haven't even touched on thermal storage and the grid, but I think we can leave that for another day. It's hugely beneficial for the grid for homes to have built-in thermal storage, the refrigerant transition, the ability to re reduce refrigerant volumes, the ability for the home to be technology agnostic. There's just so many good reasons to look at this. One area where it's a little tricky and it's really, really important for society to lean in, prick their ears up and go, okay, how do we do that? How do we electrify the heating in existing homes, right? Existing buildings. Um, and by the way, before we go to this, I'll bring you right back to it. All of what we've just said can work in commercial applications as well. Like the, the laws of thermodynamics do not change when it goes from a home to a commercial building. But so talk about the question, um, well, will this work in my house? You know, I, I live in Ohio and I have a home built in the 80s and I have a gas furnace. So... When someone says to me, will this work in my house? The, the short answer is, it sure will. However, oh, I thought you were saying yes. <laughs> right, right. We, we always we, we try to be overly positive and um, get, the, get, the, get the smile going first. But at the end of the day, the very next uh, thing I usually mention is we need to know 
a couple of things. We need to know a true load calculation of the home and knowing uh, immediately what um, what the current space is, right? If we're in a retrofit application and if we're in a home, we could have two identical homes next to each other. One of them is running uh, high temperature baseboard and maybe the other one is running uh, a fan coil, right? A fan assisted coil of some kind. And the loads could be very similar um, from one to the other, but there's a little bit more uh, adapting that would need to be done uh, to that. So once you once you know the load, and if your home is already using uh, low temperature by chance, right? If we have a condensing wall hung boiler that was the super advanced of, of not too terribly long ago, um, and we know that the delivered water temperature to that hydronic system um, can be achieved by our heat pumps that, you know, can deliver uh, water temperatures, you know, up to an exceeding 140 degrees, that makes the transition relatively simple, right? We're just changing, if you will, the engine or the, the, the mode in which we're creating that energy from a not so efficient piece to a, you know, very efficient piece of equipment. Some of the some of the the easiest systems to retrofit, if you will, are the ones that are existing, right? Maybe there uh, there's plenty of 1980 homes that have have radiant in them, right? And unfortunately, maybe that boiler had they have a you know that proverbial fire breathing dragon down inside making really hot water that they would in turn have to mix down because guess what? We don't run 140 degree water through. Uh, most radiant applications generally. So there's a lot of, of wasted heat in those in those situations. But knowing the load, knowing the current medium in which we're moving the energy, right, in that home, whether it is the air, whether it is uh, currently hydronic, we can make uh, considerations for, for each of those, right? And then from there, we would want to know like, okay, there's always those good, better, and best scenarios, right? How can I do the best I can without let's say, ripping out my existing ductwork and doing something um, new? Or how can I, uh, I have existing ductwork that would be good for heating, but I need some cooling. Okay, with hydronics, with air water heat pump technology, we can now have that thermal storage of energy ready to go for heating. But in the summer, uh, we also have some cooling capabilities. So what it would turn into is a couple of zones, if you will, off of the buffer tank in the basement going to a few fan-assisted coils placed strategically throughout the house, handling that cooling load um, in a house that has essentially never had cooling in its life. Yeah, which is huge. Yeah. Excellent. So the answer is, it depends. And the answer is absolutely, it depends. Likely, yes. Likely, yes. So, okay, so we've, we've covered the outdoor units. We've covered the indoor units. In between is piping carrying this hydronic fluid, this thermal fluid, this, this water, water glycol mix. Talk to me about the piping, please. So this is where the, the hydronic portion of the program really starts to shine, especially over the, um, the, the refrigerant based systems, right? Where we would have line set limitations, high pressure refrigerant in perhaps in walls and homes where, where folks may or may not want them. Um, we don't, we have very, understood hydronic lines, right? Every home has has water lines for their domestic water and, and washing their hands and doing their laundry and taking showers and things like that. We're just taking and moving the energy from that buffer tank, right? That thermal storage to those emitters that we just discussed. Now, depending on what those loads are, okay, we can move far more BTU through a small piece of pipe, three quarter inch pipe, whether that be 
copper or a, a, a PEC style pipe, depending on the size, uh, depending on how much flow we need. Each one of those scenarios kind of depicts how the how the piping would lay out. But we can think of it as a very neat, um, you know, kind of out and back method, right? There's going to be, if we're in heating mode, a, a supply line of the hot water going to the emitter through a pipe. And the, the great thing is that could be 10 feet away from the buffer tank on the first floor directly above it, or it could be 100 feet away round trip, right? So we're really not, uh, we're really only limited by one's imagination to design a system, okay? Because there's a lot of great piping manufacturers out there and a lot of great uh, circulator manufacturers out there um, that will allow us to take our energy from from buffer tank energy storage to emitter energy and uh, and climating uh, or climatizing or conditioning the space in the room. So we could be using some very small and uh, easily uh, manipulated uh, half-inch PEX tubing. We could use larger copper style, larger PEX style, where we would be moving, you know, 40 or 50 or more thousand BTUs in a single run right. um, out to a larger space, a larger uh, slab, um, if you will, or larger fan-assisted coils. Yeah, this is so important. This is so, such an important topic. And for us, I think that, you know, the technical ins and outs, it's rich and complicated, and I, and I want to unpack it, but I I don't really want to bog it down. We've been going about an hour now. What I think is was important to know or, or to keep in mind, what I think is important to keep in mind is that the load, like well, we have these mini splits and multi splits and um, clients are really asking for more like room specific load control. And when it comes to like, uh, let's say I have this bedroom and I want to put a unit in it so I can control the temperature in this bedroom, which by the way, huge ding, 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 huge energy savings. What if whole night, all night long, I heat the bedroom and I let the rest of the house stay cool until the morning, huge energy mm -hmm. savings. Well, the, one of the downsides of refrigerant based systems is the smallest unit of that we can go to currently. There are some coming out uh, in the U S is a half ton, 6,000 BTUs an hour. Well, what if your room is 1500 BTUs an hour, right? Well, you get six and it's four times too big with hydronic systems. You can control the, you're, you're nodding. You take it from here. Yeah. So you, you, it's, it's infinitely controllable, right? Even with uh, equipment that's out there now, when we're talking about water, there's uh, two very uh, crucial things to creating energy coming out the other side, right? That's going to be the temperature of that fluid in the flow rate of that fluid, right? So both of those can be manipulated. If in most pieces of equipment, let's say an emitter is designed to have 120 degrees water delivered at a two gallon a minute pace, okay, for X amount of BTUs. If I don't need that many BTUs, I can adjust down the water temperature or I can adjust down the flow. Uh, one or both of those, we could get to the point where if I need to deliver 2,000 BTUs to that room or 1,500, as you as you mentioned, we could take 100 degree water and run it at a half a gallon a minute through a towel bar to handle the load in that bathroom, yeah. right? We, we don't, uh, there's really no limitation as long as we have a true understanding of uh, the thermal properties, the emitters, and what our true load is in that home. Yeah. You know, or in that, that room specifically. Yeah. And I just want to point out when he talked about that towel bar in the bathroom, um, I'm lucky I have family in Switzerland and they do that. And I want to be very clear, like, it's not just the towel bar that's warm. That towel bar 
is radiating heat to every surface line of sight, speed of light. So the whole room gets warm, the floor, the ceiling, the walls. I just want to be clear, you don't just, you're not in a cold bathroom with a warm bar that you can put your hand on. <laughs> that, that, you know, a lot of times you'll have, you know, generally tile bathrooms, they might have a, a radiant floor, right? Even right. if the rest of their home isn't, they might, I just want warm, warm feet in my, in my bathroom. And like you say, we're, even if, uh, and we kind of didn't touch on this exactly, but one of the, the ideas about hydronics also is that say we've designed a system that has a variation of radiant fan coils, and maybe panel radiators. And all three of those items require a different water temperature. We're not locked into the water temperature for one of those pieces of equipment, okay? When we come to go to design a system or we talk about that thermal storage, that battery, let's say our our whole house, maybe our, our you know great room air handler, right? A large space air distribution system requires that warmest water temperature, right? That 130 degrees. But we also have a panel radiator that might need 120 degrees and maybe a radiant floor that needs 95. Exactly. We could store the energy at uh, that higher temperature, right? That 130 degree water temperature to handle those larger loads. When those smaller loads call, they can be tempered down, okay? They can be mixed. So we can, we're not going to deliver 130 degrees to an area that doesn't need it. So if we're taking 130, 130 degree water out and reducing it to, let's say, the radiant zone that might need 95 or 100, we're, that means we're even, even uh, lower energy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, lower. We're, we're really just tape, taking even smaller sips of energy out of that, um, out of that buffer. Yeah, tank. there you go. Please. It's like it's like mixing, um, you know, for domestic hot water, right? If we run our domestic hot water or hotter and mix a little cold in with it as we're washing our hands, the the storage of of hot water lasts longer in your home. Yeah, it's it's this again. It almost gets to be like philosophical or or deeply sort of um, um, value preference system. I was recently watching Dances with Wolves, and there's a scene, tragic scene of the buffalo um, and the indigenous people seeing that all these dead buffalo that people had skinned for the buffalo jackets and then just left the buffalo to die. And, and so no respect for, for living being there. And uh, gosh, what a metaphor, but it's like these hydronic systems with their ability to do low temperature heating and high temperature cooling, they, they really respect the BTU of energy that the earth has given us and said, Hey, be careful with this, please. You know, and if you combine that with a good enclosure, you can have thermal storage to ride through outages and then your electrochemical battery. It's just it's just so elegant. And I want to touch on something about piping that comes up a lot on client meetings, which is like, oh, I don't want all these water lines everywhere. Well, that ship has sailed. You have potable water lines all over your house. Yep. <laughs> and the other one is, oh, this, this refrigerant transition that's upon us, which we could largely maybe obviate if we would just do thicker wall heat exchangers in the refrigerant space, but um, heat exchanger space. But... There are these things called the A2Ls, which is a category of refrigerants that are, you know, have a higher flammability index. And, and there's a lot of people saying, oh, my gosh, you can't have flammable refrigerant. Like, well, we've got natural gas flowing through our walls right now, right? So, sure. you know, what you're hearing is like branding, messaging coming out of the, the dying gasps of the fossil fuel era. And um, you just please be aware of that, you guys. And I do not just... Dis- Maying the fact that it existed, that it happened, 
I simply think that the, those of us with role power in society to move society forward um, should do that. Okay, so covered everything except controls. Um, controls is a beast. There's so much to say. Um, I'm going to challenge you to like hit the high points, like the simple, simple, the basics of controls, please. Okay, so so here's the basics of controls, right? So um, these systems, as you can imagine, could be as mild or wild as as one would <laughs> attempt to design in them, right? The dragon. Um, uh, essentially. We have a buffer tank, and that buffer tank is the only thing that the heat pump is concerned about. There will be a Aquastat-style control. Spacepack has um, controls that monitor the outside ambient temperature as well as the buffer tank temperature. And based on the outside ambient temperature, it's going to decide um, through completely variable and, and adjustable settings what temperature that inside buffer tank is set at. If it's hot outside, I'll... I'll chill that tank down. If it's cold outside, I'll heat that tank up. So there's very little communication between the, the inside and the outside. Um, it's just basically, hey, I need to turn on and I need to be in heating or cooling mode. And then once I reach my set point, beating high set point or low set point, I shut off. So very basic controls from one to the other. And I'm going to run as efficiently as possible. Um, the whole time, right? Because it, it's going to, it, the, the machine is far better than, you know, reacting to the temperature changing as it flows through the unit than, than we would ever be, right? Um, then on the inside of the system, so that wall thermostat, if you will, uh, any uh, one of the, the the worries we get in the field from contractors, oh, this is some kind of new, uh, new voodoo magic, if you will. But once you get to the house or the home side of that buffer tank, it's similar to everything else everyone's already been familiar with, right? Whether they're circulator relays, zone valve relays, um, thermostats going down to a relay to turn on a pump to send water up. They could be four zones. There could be five zones, 10 zones. A lot of retrofit applications uh, really touch or adjust or change very little of a home's existing infrastructure because that home was originally designed for hydronic heating. So it can be... There's we can go down the rabbit hole. There are um, <laughs> just to kind of I dare you to go down briefly. <laughs> just briefly, there is uh, remote technologies. Um, you know, BMS building management system, Modbus technologies that all of our heat pumps uh, can be controlled remotely if needed. Uh, ambient air could change their delivered water temperature, so or like an outdoor reset temperature curve. Um, so. From from very basic um, to much more much more wild, we can do that. Yeah, let, let's unpack that. I'm keeping track track of time, but I think we're on the last topics here. Talk about the outdoor reset curve, please. So outdoor reset curve, similar to what you'd have on a boiler, as long as you're uh, generally once you figure the load for your house and that load. Remember, your max heating or your max cooling load would be on the the, the hottest day of the year or the coldest day of the year, essentially bringing your home up from whatever that cold temperature is. If you're, if it's uh, 30 degrees Fahrenheit and your living room calls, uh, that load isn't your whole house load. That's the load of the living room. Right. Okay. Right. And based on that, and based on the outside air temperature, the outdoor reset curve within the unit or in our controls can say, okay, well, I also don't need to deliver the hottest water because it's, you know, it's 30 degrees outside or it's 50 degrees outside. I need heat, 
but I don't need 130 degree water. So I may adjust that down to deliver 100 degree water, right? Because as we said, we can adjust a small emitter to only deliver 1000 BTUs. Um, the unit can also make its adjustments as well as our control to say, hey, listen, our buffer tank, it's 50 degrees out, you need heat, but you don't need 130. So let's do it to 110 instead. In theory, the colder uh, the temperature gets outside, the hotter the tank will get kept. Uh, the hotter it is outside, the colder uh, the tank will get kept. Beautiful. Well done. All right. So, listeners, I think we're just going to keep putting a little bit more on, on your plate here. I think uh, big picture you understand this is a profoundly important area for us to know about. So I mentioned A2Ls, um, and that got me thinking about the, the whole refrigerant transition. And, you know, as a society, we've done very well with ozone depletion potential, ODPs, and now we're working on GWPs, global warming potential. Sure. So, I mean, currently all of the equipment available is generally a, a very common or well-known R410A refrigerant, right? That does have some abilities and, and a, a couple of limitations. But one of the things it does is it has a lot uh, higher GWP than what um, is, is approved or uh, yeah. um, accepted. Yeah, by is the limit. It's at around 2,100. Correct. Right. So the, the GWP needs to be lower than a certain amount. Um, sometimes we have to, to thank our government for a little pat on the back or a push to make um, some adjustments, you know, in our industry, and this is one of those times. So, the transition there's there's a couple of uh, refrigerants that are below that um, that 750 GWP. Space Pack will be uh, transitioning to R32 um, for the time being. Um, that will allow a couple different variables: a little better uh, cold climate performance, a little bit better delivered water temperature, uh, and so on. Where I see it going is almost i say in the in the opposite direction um, but in turn we want an, an efficient piece of equipment but we also need higher water temperatures because what we've started transitioning to uh, for air to water technology is okay these things do a great job at heating and cooling my house but well, is there any way i can incorporate my domestic hot water into this system also Right. And uh, can we do this all with a refrigerant based system? And to a point you can. And then to a point you there is really no uh, replacement for a for a higher delivered water temperature, you know, to create the recovery required to have a, a truly efficient domestic hot water system. Right. Being able to take a shower and wash your hands and do dishes at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good one. Domestic hot water. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So we're, we're transitioning this way um, to create a. A whole house system, which would include a domestic hot water application tanks, reverse indirects, and things of that nature. That's about all the getting up stuff. One thirty range now for yeah, we're getting up to the the one thirty, one forty range now. Yeah, um, and that's really going to be the the limit. Um, there are some um, I don't know. Let's just say 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 companies that that advertise a higher water temperature and. We could hire or offer a higher water temperature, suggest a higher water temperature, but the, the understanding has to be made that when we talk, let's use the car analogy. If my car goes 100 miles an hour and I go 100 miles an hour every day, all day long, is it going to last longer or shorter than if I drove 65 all day long, 
right? right? Just because it can do it doesn't mean it's the most efficient, doesn't mean it's the best for the equipment, not necessarily. So instead of uh, having the equipment take the beating, if you will, of running hard all the time, let's let that piece of equipment run at its most efficient spot like we always wanted to and create and design another piece of equipment to accept that, you know, more efficient uh, created form of energy. So um, at the end of the day, there are some things on the horizon, though. We won't be able to get away from needing some higher water temperatures for some commercial applications and things like that. There's, you know, CO2 heat pumps under discussion. There's R290 heat pumps under discussion, right? When we talk about propane and everybody, we're, we're scared about propane. You know, you meant, you made the mention of, of natural gas. There are hundreds of millions of homes in the country that have propane gas piped through their house currently going to their stove, perhaps their dryer, perhaps their water heater, right? So in, in, the, in the balance of things, a monoblock air-to-water heat pump with propane as the refrigerant would have literal ounces compared to here, here. what you know their current home yeah. is. So it's all a, a grasp of understanding, um, and we look forward to for sure being uh, as, as on the forefront as we can with some of the newest technology and keeping with the not only the the newest technology but keeping things simple, keeping things efficient, and, and trying to keep things as well understood as possible. Well said. Yeah, it's what's happened over the last. Oh, 50 years, if not 100 years, is that situations have become normal, that if we understood them, we would not accept them today. And you know, meaning have natural gas running around everywhere in our homes. And there's, it could go on, I'm not gonna, not gonna go there. So yeah, well done. And I, I wanna make it clear that these refrigerant transitions, it's not just ozone depletion and global warming, although those are probably the, the marquee. Uh, there's also just flammability we mentioned, toxicity, uh, ecosystem effects, there's air quality effects. So a lot to think about, but I think we have, we're coming close to, yeah, we're, we're pretty much at the end. I think I would like to highlight that you're going to be at AHR in Chicago, January, 2023. If you're listening, that's correct. It's at the end. It's like the 22nd, I think. Yeah. Yep. Towards the end. Yep. Middle to end. Sure. I really appreciate it. With, with a whole heart and complete sincerity, Jim, like this is a topic that personally and professionally, I have been wanting to unpack for more than 10 years, right? Just trying to uncover all these, like these beautiful dimensions of air, water, heat pumps and hydronic distribution. And we did it. Ah, yeah, it was, it was quick. It's like getting fed with a fire hose sometimes, right? How much can you, how much can you take in? But, uh, um, glad, glad to uh, accept the invitation and, and talk anytime. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Jim, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>